are. Recently, our podcast crew visited the home of a former Defense Intelligence Agency teammate. His name is John. We were warmly greeted by his wife, Natalia. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Please come in. Great to be here. After Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022, John called us and told us about his Ukrainian-born wife, who still had family there. John and Natalia and their relatives who we interviewed for this story, including two teenagers, agreed to publicly share their experiences to help Americans better understand the harsh reality of what they've been seeing on the news. Natalia's cousin Sasha and his twin 14-year-old girls Camila and Veronica lived in a small town in western Ukraine. At the beginning of the war, that part of the country was mostly spared from Russian attack. But a few months later, all that changed when the girls were walking down the street on their way home from a friend's house. First came the familiar sound of air raid sirens. Then came... Two missiles flew over their heads and exploded into apartment buildings approximately a quarter mile from where they were standing. Understandably, the girls were petrified. They literally couldn't move, frozen from fear. In fact, Veronica needed to be carried away by her boyfriend. Later that night, their father, Sasha, met up with his daughters. They were hysterically sobbing and in shock. He was, too. The next morning, he told them something they didn't want to hear. He was making plans for them to leave Ukraine for America. The Ukrainian government had established certain restrictions for males between the ages of 18 to 60 that wanted to leave the country. Because his specific family situation offered an exemption, Sasha was permitted to leave. And fearing for the safety of his children, that's what he decided to do. Four months after his country was mercilessly invaded, Sasha and his daughters arrived at the home of his cousin in America, just in time for a bittersweet celebration. Mike, we have a birthday here? Yes, they just, just twins just turned 15. That's right, look at that. On Sunday. That's lovely. We tried to do oh. as much as we can for their birthday. There were still tears, disappointment, and all sorts of stuff. Oh, yeah. Friends, family, and their entire way of life were left behind in Ukraine. The heartbreak for Camila, Veronica, and millions of children just like them, forced to flee from their homes, is palpable. Our episode is about those who pay the highest price in war. This is DIA Connections, and here's Ukraine, the children of war. On the show, you'll hear from a clinical psychologist with 30 years of experience working with children who've undergone traumatic life-altering events. There's not a timeline or a timetable that I can say, gosh, in, in X amount of time, things are going to be fine. We don't know. Every child, even when they experience the exact same event, will respond in their own unique way. We also spoke with the founder of a museum solely dedicated to children who have personally experienced war. I lived in Sarajevo during the whole siege of Sarajevo, which lasted over three years. This experience profoundly affected me and uh, my life and uh, the life of my, my generation. 
And you'll hear the translated words of two really brave girls whose traumatic experiences at such a young age have already given them a perspective on life well beyond their years. You start enjoying small things in life. You start enjoying life in general. The freedom to walk and not to worry about dying in your life. If you think about all these other people suffering conflicts as we do and you feel very compassionate about everything that they're experiencing and you enjoy every moment that you have. The Russian military has begun a brutal assault on the people of Ukraine. Without provocation, <clears throat> without justification, Without necessity, this is a premeditated attack. Two weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24, 2022, the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova, came to the Defense Intelligence Agency headquarters. She met with DIA Director Lieutenant General Scott Barrier. It was a friendly visit to reinforce the bond between Ukraine and the United States and their shared commitment to uphold democracy around the world. Here's an excerpt from Ambassador Markarova's message to the DIA workforce. I would be honored to call you exactly as the director called you and address you as team. So hello team, because we feel that we are one team in this together, as this fight is a righteous fight. And we will not stop, even though it has been very hard, we will not stop, we will not get tired, and uh, we will continue to fight for our motherland. It is still the case here, despite the war, that the young trust their parents to protect them, whatever might come, however strange the world they've been cast into. For our former DIA teammate John and his Ukrainian-born wife Natalia, the decision to help bring their family to the States to live with them was an easy one. But convincing two teenage girls to leave the only home they've ever known was not. Here's a conversation that John had with Defense Intelligence Agency Chief Historian Paul Isaacson. So your wife is from Ukraine. Um, she has family there. Tell us about the initial discussions you and your wife were having about the family coming to live with you. There was no hesitation. I want them here as quickly as possible. I even told my wife, like, I'll go over there if I have to and grab them and come back here. I felt useless. I want to help out as much as I can. My wife, she wants to do something real bad, but reliving thousands and thousands of miles away from the war zone, what can we do? It was just intense, it was very intense. We told them to go to the border as quickly as possible. Refugee agencies are warning that millions of Ukrainians could be on the move to escape the fighting, heading for the border with neighboring countries. All journeys now lead west. In days, the lives of millions upended. The only thought, is to get to safety. So John, the family has now made the decision to leave Ukraine. They cross the border with Poland. They're on their way to the United States. What's happening next? Well, it wasn't that easy. It was actually kind of difficult. Uh, unfortunately, the twins were conspiring to escape. They don't want to do this. They want to go back home to their friends, to the grandparents. They were literally going to run away. Yeah, yeah, five yeah. times. They tried to escape five times. <laughs> Five times. All right. Whoa. Yes. Wow, John. I mean, we would think that these girls would want to escape this war, but 
that wasn't the case. No, it wasn't. That they, the they human nature, they wanted to stay so badly right. at home right. they, that they would escape from their father in Poland and try to attempt right. to they, go back. They literally wanted to do that because they were so attached to Ukraine, they were so attached to their family and their friends. Each time it failed. For the girls, leaving their home and country for the first time was almost too much to bear. Thankfully, it was made just a bit easier when they arrived into the welcoming arms of Natalia, a fellow Ukrainian. I have not seen my cousin since I was 25, so I'm at this point 39, so 14 years since I've seen my cousin. And girls, they were just year old, so they certainly do not remember me. Hugs, kisses, and lots of reminiscing were followed by a few stereotypical introductions to American life. That meant hamburgers, hot dogs, shopping malls, and Starbucks, all of which was thoroughly enjoyed. The oppressive summer heat, on the other hand, not so much. It quickly became clear that despite being in a safe place, the transition would not be an easy one. The world they knew and loved had changed overnight. Here again is Paul with Natalia. So what were those, just those first few days like after they arrived here? Challenging, terrible, miserable for all of us. It was was very hard. They were very sad. They were very depressed. Uh, They were dealing with lots of anxiety. They were crying nonstop. There's nothing really we could do to make them happy. They just were crying and said, we want to go back. We don't want to be here. We don't like it here. We don't like anything about this. We don't care about all the things that you can provide. Did you see signs of the trauma yourself in the girls? Yes, I still can see them on a daily basis. Uh, something like that cannot happen to someone that does not leave signs of trauma. They're just going through different stages of grief right now. They're grieving, uh, leaving their parent, grandparents and their friends behind, as well as um, uh, they being in denial. I think they just kind of trying to forget what happened to them and they pretend like nothing happened. What do you think is the biggest challenge for them now that they're here in America? Assimilation, that would be the biggest challenge for any immigrant, period. It's learning English, it's uh, knowing how to behave in particular situations, it's understanding the culture, it's understanding how to speak, dress, walk, behave, everything. Especially when you're a teenager, um, you're always um, so self-conscious. And being a 15-year-old girl, you're certainly going to be more conscious than others. When people are going to be paying attention to you more than to others, you will be going through some anxiety episodes, I would think. Everyone in the path of war experiences some form of trauma, and the youngest are the ones that suffer the psychological scars that last the longest. Millions of Ukraine's children have had to flee their homes since the war began, with UNICEF estimating two-thirds of them are now displaced. For some, it's... I'm Dr. Robin Gerwich. I am a psychologist and professor at Duke School of Medicine at Duke University Health Sciences Center. We spoke with Dr. Gerwich because she has 30 years of experience in evidence-based treatments and the impact of trauma, from disasters, terrorism, and war on children. Dr. Gerwich, thanks for joining us. Let me begin by asking you to give us a definition of trauma. 
One of the definitions that's often used comes from the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, big long name for SAMHSA, which is a federal agency. And SAMHSA defines trauma as a result from an event or a series of events or a set of circumstances that someone experiences as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening and that may have lasting negative or adverse effects on that individual's ability to function um, and their mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. I'm guessing that living in and then leaving a country ravaged by war would be considered a traumatic event. When we think about children that have left someplace due to war or violence, and relocated. Certainly that would qualify as a pretty traumatic event to be um, their worries about safety, security for themselves, for the people they love, for their country, for their friends, uh, and being relocated to a new place where they may not speak the language, where the customs where the activities are so very different can be extremely challenging to anybody. But definitely when we think about teenagers, life as a teenager without trauma is probably difficult enough. It's a time where you're trying to figure out who you are, where do you fit in, how do you belong, and then you're putting on top of this some pretty traumatic experiences. As I was doing research for our conversation, I learned about a popular song that you're not a fan of. Well, let me rephrase that. You're okay with the song, but not the message. Now to make our next very musical Grammy presentation, we have a two-time Grammy winner with three more nominations tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Kelly Clarkson! So what is it that you have against Kelly Clarkson? So I love Kelly Clarkson. And her song, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger, I understand. She was not talking about trauma. But when we take that line, she got it wrong. Because what doesn't kill us just adds layer upon layer upon layer. So the more traumatic events that pile on each other, the more adverse experiences that we have, particularly in childhood, the more at risk we are for mental health challenges as we grow up and into adulthood. You know, if we if we started making a checklist of all the things they've experienced in the last year, there are many. And again, it doesn't just make them stronger. It just adds to the more things they have to cope with. Sasha, thank you for allowing us. Paul to sat this. down for a discussion with their father, Sasha. Sure His cousin, Natalia, was at the ready to translate. The first question was meant to be somewhat of an icebreaker, with Paul asking Sasha about his hometown. But almost immediately after their conversation began, Paul stopped to acknowledge what was painfully obvious. I know we've just met, and I, I know there's a language barrier, but you, you, you appear sad to me. Yes, you're absolutely right. 
Uh, that's the right observation. I am very sad uh, because due to the fact what's going on in my homeland. It is very sad for me to see my friends dying, fighting for Ukraine. I have lost some friends. I know lots of friends who are volunteering right now uh, and lots of friends who are fighting right now. And it breaks my heart to think about what's happening with my homeland. It's very hard to be happy. That's what really impacts uh, my mood. Russia now has 70% of the forces in place to mount a full-scale invasion of Ukraine that would be the largest war in Europe since World War II. Putin was in Beijing today. Were you aware of the Russian military buildup on the border? And how did you think about that? What did you think was going to happen? I realized about the military presence at the border, but honestly could not imagine that this was, would escalate to this level. Sasha, why didn't you think that the Russians would invade? I never thought that this would be a full-blowing war in 21st century. And the most shocking part of this is that Ukrainians and Russians are brotherly uh, nations. We come from same background. Uh, we have so many relatives and people mixed with Ukrainians and Russians. It just seems to be unbelievable that something like that would happen between such a two close nations. It was unprovoked, but this is what Russian President Vladimir Putin unleashed on Ukraine the sun came up this morning. A missile In the following weeks and months, Sasha told us that air raid sirens would go off all the time. And unfortunately, they sort of got used to it. It became the new normal. Until one night, the warning sirens were more than just warnings. That's when the two missiles we talked about earlier hit apartment buildings down the street from his daughters. When did you first start having discussions about the possibility of leaving Ukraine. The first time I really wanted to leave Ukraine, it was when I saw my children crying. When um, the sirens started going off and my children were terrified. There's nothing like a sound of siren that warns you about missiles flying above. And when you see your daughters crying uh, hysterically because they're afraid, it certainly will make you think about such decisions. Certainly the major factor was tears of my daughters. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, more than 11 million people have crossed the border out of Ukraine since February 24, 2022. That's the largest refugee exodus since World War II. Roughly 150,000 have entered the United States. Is it weird that you've probably read about refugees or, or people that have been displaced by a war sometime as you studied history? Is it weird that, that you think of, that's, that's you now? That's me now? How does that feel? I have heard quite a bit about war in my family. Our grandmother used to be um, a victim of uh, communist oppression. She was sent to Siberian Gulag for 10 years, in fact. Um, I kind of thought that since our grandparents fought, fought in World War II, it was over. 
Мова, культура, народ. My language, my culture, my people, my country are left behind. It will take really long time for me to get through assimilation process if actually this will ever happen. I am uncertain if you can really, truly can assimilate in any other country, but I do miss those things quite a bit. I never thought I would ever be in this position in my lifetime. Nestled in the countryside of western Ukraine is the beautiful city of Chortkiv, population 30,000. Ancient castles and churches going back to the 16th century sit on cobblestone streets lined with shops and cafes. Sasha describes it as a nice place to live because numerous cultures are represented there, which is different than eastern Ukraine. Chortkiv is where Paul began his conversation with Sasha's daughters, Veronica and Camilla. And not surprisingly, they shared their father's passion for their hometown, albeit for different reasons. First question, I've never been to Ukraine, and I've certainly never been to your town of Chortkiv. Tell us what it's like. Chortkiv is uh, one of the kind city. Nothing really repeats itself in Chortkiv. It's very tiny, but it's so amazing. Everybody knows everybody. It's really cool. It is a nice city, and it's old city, and it has its own old charm. What's your perfect great day having fun in Chortkiv? Uh, so, ideal day would be going to the river that kind of goes all the way across this, the valley and just sit there until it gets dark. Uh, listen to music, talk to friends, laugh. Have your boyfriend buy you some kind of tasty snacks. And once you're done eating and watching sunset over the river and listening to all the music, you can go over to grandma's for some tea and some cake. Wow, tell them that sounds perfect. I want to go. <laughs> Girls, we'll get a little more serious now in our conversation. When the Russian invasion uh, began, what were some of the things that really changed for you? You start enjoying small things in life. You start enjoying life in general. The freedom to walk and not to worry about dying in your life. If you think about all these other people suffering conflicts, as we do, and you feel very compassionate about everything that they're experiencing and you enjoy every moment that you have. I understand, girls, that you started hearing air raid sirens in your town. What was that like? Was it, was it scary? It is quite scary. It's nothing like hearing the siren. I remember it was one morning I woke up uh, due to the siren that went off. The only other time I ever heard a siren would be in the movie. I just heard them in the movies, but never in real life. And once you hear one for your first time in real life, it's quite different and it's very scary. I understand you had an even more scary experience than just hearing an air raid siren. This happened one night when you were walking. Can you tell us what happened? 
So basically, uh, it was a typical evening. We were just hanging out, my sister, myself, and my boyfriend. We hang out with some friends before, and we were just going back home. And then I can hear some kind of whistle-like sound. And I just kind of told my sister, don't you worry, it's nothing. And then we hear first explosion happen, and um, then the second one happened, and all of a sudden, my boyfriend picked me up and he was carrying me and then I just I couldn't hear anything I, I think I just heard first two uh, bumps and afterwards I couldn't hear anything uh, because it was so loud and I guess part of that was shock and I was he just carried me uh, all the way down uh, and it was quite scary did you hear it first or did you see it first I heard that explosion first and I turned around and then I saw um, a big ring of fire. It looked like a mushroom shape but it was giant and I felt the heat wave and then all the other sound, all the sound of broken glass. You both have experienced something that almost no American children have ever experienced. Can you try to describe what you were feeling? I thought I was going to die. That was my first thought. Uh, eventually, I accept that thought that I was going to die. There was no other option. I just got scared and I was not leaving my home. I was staying at home because I was so terrified after everything that happened. And for me, I start appreciating every day that I have with my friends and family. I start appreciating uh, and being thankful for everything that I have and everyone I have in my life. Next, we want to tell you about a place that gives a voice to current and former war children. It's the world's first museum exclusively focused on childhood affected by armed conflicts and war. And it's called the War Childhood Museum. The museum tackles trauma at an individual level for participants whose personal stories and objects comprise the museum's collection and the museum's visitors. Yasminko Halilovich is the founder and managing director of this unique museum, which blossomed out of an idea he had for a book based on his firsthand knowledge of war. He grew up in Bosnia and Herzegovina in the 1990s. I lived in Sarajevo during the whole siege of Sarajevo, which lasted uh, over three years. And this experience profoundly affected me and uh, my life and uh, the life of my, my generation. And after the war ended in Bosnia, we had hundreds of projects about the war. And there were uh, platforms for politicians to talk, for soldiers to talk, for journalists to talk. But there was no many platforms for children to talk. I thought that children's experiences are not documented properly, are not talked about uh, enough. And I wanted to fill this gap uh, by this book. Yasminko, when you were doing research for the book, you posted a question online asking, what was a war childhood for you? And the response was overwhelming. But people didn't just want to tell you things. They wanted to send you things. And it just took off from there. What did you learn from that response? What I learned very quickly, that they have opportunity to share some of their memories, was helping them to face some of their experiences, helping them to process some of their experiences, helping them to start a dialogue within their families or friends, 
about their experiences. So very quickly after I launched the project, I understood that they uh, often tend to connect uh, uh, some of their memories to these objects and belongings. That's how I came up with the idea that it should be in the museum. The first permanent location opened in Bosnia in 2015. And since then, expansion has developed in other cities, including in Kyiv, Ukraine. That project began in 2020 to document the experiences of those affected by the Donbass War. More than 4,000 objects have been collected from recent wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and even from World War II. But unlike most other museums, the items on display aren't expensive or rare, but they do have significant value to the people willing to share them. Yasmiko, can you tell us what sort of items you've received and how they illustrate their experiences? Photographs, uh, letters, diaries, books, drawings, but then also many 3D items uh, like toys, like clothing, like some everyday, everyday objects which maybe did not belong to a child necessarily, but maybe to a family member, maybe sometimes some handmade stuff, some improvised stuff, uh, some things which were very useful like solar-powered radio. Uh, which was used to get the news when there was no electricity. And this made this boy who had it a star of the neighborhood because everyone was listening the news from his solar-powered radio. These were like very, very diverse objects. And this is the beauty of our collection because it's sometimes very unexpected what you would find in our collection. And the ones selected to be displayed have an accompanying story that goes along with them, right? Yeah, there is always a story. Actually, in, in, the, uh, in, in the structure of our collection, the story is above the object. So the object is there to illustrate the story and the memory. And sometimes they say that we are a museum of stories. So the, the storytelling is central to, to our uh, exhibitions. We choose the stories, not the objects, and then count the objects which will illustrate the stories. What do you want people to feel when they visit the museum? The feeling which we inspire in visitors for us, it's central to inspire the sense of respect towards these stories and these memories. So we don't want to inspire mere sadness or pity. We want to inspire respect. And that's very important for our participants who share their stories because uh, they themselves feel empowered uh, if their stories are presented with dignity. And to preserve this dignity, uh, you, you not only you do it uh, in, in the words of, of people who, who share these stories, but also you try to uh, inspire respect and some hope with visitors. And when we look at our book of impressions, the guest book at the museum, you will really often see these words, hope and respect. One last question. Do you think our society has just come to accept the fact that children will suffer the consequences of war, and that's all there is to it? For a reasonable human being, it's uh, easily understandable that uh, children should not live in these circumstances or affected by armed conflicts. I see our museum as one of the platforms which raise awareness about the complexity and multilayeredness of, of this experience and its consequences. I see it as a warning uh, to, for decision makers and for the general public which elect decision makers uh, that the peace uh, has to be our priority and I know this is uh, easier to say than to do and I'm not uh, I am well aware that uh, new conflicts are starting and uh, unfortunately that uh, uh, many more are probably to come but uh, this doesn't mean that we, we can stop fighting for peace 
I think each voice is precious, especially in this polarized world now with so much uh, tensions and, and, and conflicts. So I, I just hope that the World Childhood Museum can be one of these voices for peace. Would you say that you are more mad at everything that's happened, angry, or more sad? Very angry about the war. Can you tell us why you're more angry versus sad? I get very angry um, about what Russian propaganda is doing to Russian people, and I'm very angry that they uh, call this uh, uh, Russian war operation. They call it this oper uh, military operation and they're not allowed to call it uh, for what it is. It, it's war, it's not operation. Throughout our visit, the girls expressed their thankfulness to be with family in a safe place, as well as their desire to go back to Ukraine as soon as possible. They also conveyed some other emotional thoughts they wanted us to share with everyone listening. We give these extraordinary young ladies the last words. I would like to tell everyone to appreciate everything that they have in the United States. It is amazing to not be in attack and to have um, that feeling of, of safety. It is very hard to be a refugee. When you move to another country, because you have to, it's, it's never going to be the same. It's never going to be your own country. And it's very challenging. War is uh, nothing like you can imagine. As always, thank you for listening to DIA Connections. <laughs>